Hello and welcome to this podcast series which explores the recently published book A New Dynamic 2. The book looks at effective systems in a circular economy and contains 11 articles which span a variety of fields including architecture, agriculture, design, business and engineering providing insights that point towards a new regenerative framework for economic prosperity. I'm Colin Webster and I work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation who published the book. We say that a circular economy is inspired by living systems and that one of the schools of thought that inspires the model is biomimicry. In this episode, I speak with Michael Pollan, the director of the Architectural Practice Exploration and the author of Biomimicry and Architecture. Let's find out why he thinks that ecosystems thinking is the key to regenerative circular economy. Okay, first question, Michael. Tell us about your chapter. So the chapter is really about how you can apply ecosystems thinking to uh, industrial processes and buildings and even cities. And the thing that's great about ecosystems thinking is that uh, many of the characteristics of ecosystems are perfectly suited to the kind of transformations that we need to bring about to create a, a cyclical, uh, efficient, um, uh, zero waste e- economy. Uh, so, for instance, you know, whereas conventional human-made systems uh, tend to be linear, wasteful, polluting, and run on fossil fuels. Uh, ecosystems have adapted to to be very efficient, highly interconnected, zero waste, and running on current solar income, amongst many other very useful characteristics. So I've heard of the term systems thinking before, but not ecosystems thinking. What's the difference between those two terms? I think the the, the key difference is that ecosystems thinking has a more specifically biological angle to it. So it it draws on some of the lessons that you can learn from biological systems as opposed to, say, um, I'm guessing that a lot of the the work that Donella Meadows did on systems thinking was was largely to do with human-made systems. And um, the the key difference is that ecosystems thinking uh, brings in lessons from ecosystems and and those can be very useful in terms of um, uh, shifting uh, systems towards the the, the kind of things we need them uh, to achieve so uh, resilient uh, non-toxic zero waste and so on so the the book's obviously about the circular economy and here you are writing about biomimicry what do you see as the relationship between the two so Ken Webster's new book, A Wealth of Flows, is a, a wonderful description of just how broad the idea of a circular economy can be. And, and it shows how there is a, a very interesting overlap between biomimicry and, and the circular economy. And where I think biomimicry can, tri- can contribute a lot is in uh, rethinking the design of systems and products so that they use far less energy and far less resources in the first place. I mean, that's that's one of the very big transformations that we need to bring about. And then the other really big transformation is the shift from linear to cyclical, of course. And, and that's where I think we can learn a lot from ecosystems thinking uh, that can contribute to, to the notion of, of a circular economy. Okay, let's rewind a little bit, Michael. Could you tell us what, what it was that got you first interested in biomimicry? 
Well, in a way, it goes back to when I was a teenager. I was passionate about three things, design, biology, and the environment. And at that point, I couldn't see how you could combine those things. I looked into studying biology at university, but I didn't see how that could be a creative pursuit at that point. So I pursued architecture. And then it really wasn't until I was age 30 that uh, I had an opportunity to combine those. So that's when I joined Grimshaw to work on the Eden Project. And when I went on a five-day course run by Amory Lovins and Jenny Benius, that's when I realized the amazing potential of biomimicry, you know, far beyond just the the conventional things that have been used for. So I think architects had referred to spiders, webs, and termite mounds quite a bit. But what that course showed me was that it's such a broad uh, discipline that um, it has lessons for just about all the functional challenges that, that we need to address in buildings and cities. Um, so the more I looked into it, the more passionate I got. And then in 2007, that's when I decided to set up my own company, Exploration, so that I could focus on biomimicry exclusively. And talking of your own company, one of the projects I've heard you speak about before and you write about in this chapter uh, really fascinates me. It's called the Sahara Forest Project. For those who haven't come across it before, could you just give us an overview of what it's all about? Yes, sure. So the Sahara Forest Project, at its core, there are three technologies. There's a type of greenhouse that is cooled and humidified with salt water. There are forms of solar energy, and there are desert revegetation technologies. And when you bring those three together, and that's what the project is really about, uh, you get some very interesting synergies. So each of those performs better than it would be if it was just done in isolation. And since we started working on it in earnest, when we carried out extensive feasibility studies in Qatar and Jordan, we've extended that system. So much like the kind of ecosystems that I talk about in my chapter in the book, uh, we've looked at bringing in other elements such as, say, algae for biofuels, uh, halophytes, which are plants that grow directly in salt water, uh, ways of making materials out of the, uh, the brine that comes out of the greenhouses, uh, ways of using technologies like uh, biorock to actually grow building materials into useful structural elements. And what I find really appealing about these kind of ecosystem models is that the more they grow, the more it seems the number of possibilities increase. And all the time you're, you're working towards a system that is more and more productive and becoming more and more uh, close to zero waste. Uh, now, one of the things I really like about the Sahara Forest Project is the positive effects you had on biodiversity. Could you just um, describe those effects to us right now? Sure. We we had a hunch that the project was going to be regenerative in terms of what it would do to the immediate um, biodiversity and, and environment. So we monitored that in Qatar, where we built the first pilot plant. Um, and this was alongside all the more technical things. So we were very carefully monitoring the way that the greenhouse functions, the productivity of the solar energy and so on. Um, and with the biodiversity, we had a baseline survey that showed that there was basically nothing there. It was just a, a bare patch of desert. And then we kept a record of every species that was sighted. So the first things to appear were uh, house flies, nothing particularly interesting there. 
the same day that the first plants came to site, we had the first birds, common house sparrows. Uh, very soon after that, uh, we had the first insects, so uh, crickets. And um, then about a month later, we had the first butterfly, uh, which was really quite startling because this was maybe five kilometers from the nearest significant bit of vegetation. And as things carried on, the, the number of birds and the number of insects was increasing all the time. We had a bit of a problem for a while with rats, and so their numbers increased uh, briefly, and that was mainly because we were being a bit careless with the way we were storing seed and leaving food around. And um, their numbers started to reduce when a, a feral cat appeared on site, but actually it was nothing to do with the cat because the rats were almost as big. Uh, it was just we were getting better at um, uh, storing the seed. And then when we planted the halophytes, those are the plants that grow in seawater, uh, we had other types of bird. We had a fairly rare bird uh, called a hoopoe, which appeared, and those aren't very common in Qatar. So this process carried on all the time. And three days after we filled the algae ponds, we had the first dragonflies. So again, quite remarkable where they came from. And by the end, we had a really quite a diverse system with uh, probably 10 different types of birds. We had four different types of mammals, including an indigenous one called a jaboa, uh, quite an extensive um, array of insects. And all that was achieved in just eight months on a site 100 meters by 100 meters. So I'm very confident that if that were to be done over a longer period of time on a bigger scale, that regenerative effect would be even more pronounced. When we look at biodiversity from the other side, which is to say biodiversity loss, it's often something that's that's written off as an externality of another project. But here you are building in uh, biodiversity growth. How could we make sure that uh, policy policymakers and planners factor in biodiversity growth um, so that projects like yours are, are looked at in a favourable light? That's an excellent question, and I, I wish I knew the answer to that, because um, I feel that on the Sahara Forest Project, and, and actually on quite a few of these uh, cyclical systems, we're delivering a lot of benefits that are not fully recognized by conventional economics. And in some of the areas where we're planning to work on the Sahara Forest Project, we will attempt to uh, derive some uh, value from that in, in monetary terms. So for instance, most of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa are signatories to the UN um, counter desertification project. So they, they have uh, binding commitments that, that commit them to halting and reversing desertification um, and the biodiversity that goes with that. So if we're delivering, um, helping them to deliver on their targets, then I think we'd be uh, quite entitled to ask for some of the budget that they have allocated for that purpose. The solutions that you offer have um, a lot of interconnectivity to them. Uh, they're a lot more complex than the status quo, but I understand uh, there's larger payoffs down the line, which must mean that you're looking for, for clients with um, a long-term perspective. I mean, those are the kind of clients we like, yeah, the ones that are prepared to take a slightly longer-term view on things. Uh, and... By doing that, I, I think they will be minimizing their future risk because uh, if or when the regulations get tightened, they'll already have made the changes necessary to, to flourish in that kind of um, environment. And also by following the kind of ideas that we propose, 
uh, they will have much lower running costs in their system. We, we've generally found that it takes about a, a six-year payback period to pay for the kind of things we're talking about, which is, is zero carbon and very close to zero waste. And you know, in most locations, a six-year payback period is, is perfectly within the, the realms of possibility. It just depends on whether they're prepared to take that slightly longer-term view on the economics. Now tell me, if I were a city planner, why would I be interested in biomimicry? Well, I think a lot of city planners at the moment are looking with great interest at things like uh, the, the circular economy model, and they're, they're persuaded by that. Uh, I'm guessing they're also looking at um, ideas of um, uh, hundred percent renewable cities that run entirely on renewable energy and there are initiatives that are pushing that at a city level and um, there's also been a lot of interest in uh, resilience and designing for resilient cities and I think there is the potential for a certain amount of confusion there and some people might think well you know which which is more important um, is it more important to go for a, a circular economy or a renewable energy system or a resilient city and I feel that the ecosystems model is a very good model that addresses all of those simultaneously and, and has the potential to, to unify those because ecosystems are very resilient in the way that they are uh, established and the way they've evolved over time. They run entirely on solar energy and so that um, has a whole series of implications to it in terms of designing each element to be very energy efficient in its own right as well as trying to make use of all uh, waste sources of, of energy. And then ecosystems models are, are, are great models for cyclicity as well. So that's why I think it's a, a very good way of, of unifying what may appear to be uh, a, a kind of complex um, set of environmental trends. All these different terms that we use, biomimicry, circular economy, smart cities, uh, is there is there some need for a, a common language so we can talk about uh, solutions that work? I, I'm not even sure I've asked a, a reasonable question there. I mean, I think the, the the language of Ken Webster's latest book, where he describes a very comprehensive model of uh, the circular economy, and and perhaps a much broader model than people understood it to mean, say, ten years ago, when it was regarded as just a way of redesigning products. Um, I think that is also a very powerful unifying vision. So with a lot of these things, it, it, it kind of remains to be seen which becomes the most um, successful and engaging way to talk about things. And, and so I think we'll see. Um, one, one thing that I, I do think is um, problematic is, is uh, the idea of referring to a, a zero growth or a, a steady state economy. Uh, not because I don't agree with the essence of it, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's a very unappealing vision. And marketing people will, will always tell you that you're going to have a, a harder task to sell something that doesn't sound appealing. And to me, a steady state economy or a zero growth economy, frankly, it sounds a bit turgid. And um, you know, a circular economy or an ecosystems model, uh, that is all about uh, living in a state of dynamic equilibrium with high levels of growth, decay, and renewable, uh, renewal. And for me, that is a, a much more appealing thing to sell. 
and um, I think uh, that's that's the way the debate will go. Thanks for your time, Michael. If you'd like to learn more about biomimicry and architecture, or read about the other themes explored in the book A New Dynamic 2, you can order your copy from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website. In addition, you can join me speaking to more contributors to the book by looking out for the other podcasts in this series. Until next time, goodbye.